Welcome to the EcoCiv podcast. This is Austin Roberts. At EcoCiv, we are collaborating with others from around the world who are working toward an ecological civilization. And on this podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecociv.org. Today, Andrew Schwartz talks with Brian McLaren, who is a well-known author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. As a former college English teacher and pastor, Brian is now a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, one that emphasizes justice, generosity, and working toward the common good with people of all faiths. He has published many books, including Why Did Jesus, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road?, which looks at the intersection of religious identity, interreligious hostility, and human solidarity. More recently, he published The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to be Christian. Brian is deeply interested in wildlife, ecology, and environmental issues. And as you'll hear in his conversation with Andrew, he has now turned his attention toward the creation of an ecological civilization. Brian and Andrew also talk about the relationship between economics and ecology, capitalism and American Christianity, the rise of the religious unaffiliated, or the so-called nuns, the need to imagine economies beyond exploitation and extractivism, and the possibilities for hope in a time of rapid climate breakdown. And now, here's Brian and Andrew. I'm with renowned author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, Brian McLaren. So welcome, Brian. Happy to be with you and so happy for the work you're doing. Likewise. I'd like to just dive right in um, and and hear a little bit more about uh, why you do what you do. As a theologian who's been at the forefront of reimagining what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century, uh, a new kind of Christian, I'm wondering what motivated you to start turning your attention toward the creation of an ecological civilization? Mm, Well, you know, it's complicated to know what's the chicken and what's the egg in these, some of these uh, stories, even as I look back in my own life, because I would say that central to my spirituality from my childhood has been this deep love for creation. I've been a guy who loved animals and loved plants and loved trees and, I remember when I was a little boy thinking, when I grow up, I'm going to know the name of every bird and I'll know how to identify every bird sound, every bird song. And it's just been so much a part of me. And and in some ways, my understanding of God as creator uh, was so deep that a lot of the theology I learned later on just never fit in with that core, uh, you know, sense of what, what or who God is because so much of it was about this cavalier attitude toward creation being destroyed and thrown away like a candy wrapper so human souls could be sucked up to heaven. And uh, this, this, in my mind, destructive idea of the end times and so on, where we don't need to protect the world because Jesus is coming back and God's going to burn it all up anyway. So, you know, I've had this tension that, that what, I, I wouldn't have used the word ecological for it, but it really was. It, it was the sense that 
whatever I am as a human being, I'm part of the animal kingdom and I'm, I'm dependent on the plant kingdom. I, I'm part of this beautiful creation. And so that's been with me from the beginning. But I was a pastor for 24 years and um, I, I, the, those 24 years happened to be the same years that the religious right took control of uh, so much of the religious community in both Protestantism and Catholicism. A lot of people don't realize that you know, there's a Catholic and a Protestant wing of the religious right. And as that, the more that happened, the more I realized that care for the earth was going to be a, a critical issue. Uh, I, I, uh, and I had several experiences I could share with you if you want that, that brought that to the fore. But by the mid and late 90s, as I began to learn about climate change, I, I, it started to reorient my whole ethical framework. And it started to make me realize that a whole lot of resources that are there for me as a Christian in the biblical story, for example, Jesus saying that the love, uh, Jesus saying that you can't serve God and money, or Paul saying that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I, I started to realize that the love of money was what was driving ecological destruction and I started, it, all of this just worked together to kind of, I don't know if radicalize me is the right word, but certainly to make me absolutely unwilling to float along with the status quo. That's beautiful. You talk about the love of money and the impact that that has had on the environment. How do you see sort of economics and environmental issues and all these sort of things um, impacting one another? Yeah, well, well, let me say, first of all, that since America is something over 70% identified as Christian, you would wish that the Christian community really understood its primary calling to bring moral and ethical wisdom to the issues of today. Um, but we have to realize that, that money has a huge control in the religious world, just as it does in the political and uh, educational and scientific worlds. And so Unfortunately, what so often happens is that religion, and specifically American Christianity, becomes the chaplaincy to a kind of capitalism that we have now. And, and so I sometimes say that Christianity becomes reduces Jesus to a hood ornament on the gas-guzzling hummer of Western civilization. Um, uh, but underneath this, really, it seems to me, and again, our, our faith tells us to look at the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. I, I start to realize that, that when Jesus said you, can only, you can't serve both God and money, that's really our choice. Is there a value, a source of values, apart from and above an intention with money, or is money really Lord at the end of the day? Um, and, and how that works on our current economic system uh, it, it seems to me is that the way we have not only gotten rich and, and had incredible prosperity, you know, we have halved poverty rates in the world since 1990. I mean, we've made remarkable progress. We still have so far to go, but we've made a lot of progress, right? But the way we have done that largely is through an extractive economy. We suck resources out of the world and monetize them without having to think about what happens when those resources run out or if we extract them too fast to be replenished and without thinking about all of the wastes 
that we produce in the process of processing those resources, right? So, so we've made a fast buck for a couple hundred years in the industrial era by first exploiting the environment, and then here's what goes along with it, exploiting the labor of the poor. And so we, and, and we see this so powerfully illustrated now when you know, a, a few families end up controlling a huge amount of the wealth uh, of, of, the, uh, uh, of the country and of the world. So, so this extractive economy and exploitive economy, extractive resources, exploitive of labor, is what's holding up the pyramid of, of our global economy today. And, and this is why I think Pope Francis was both poetic and absolutely prophetic when he called us to hear the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, um, which, by the way, was a title uh, of a book by Leonardo Boff, a Latin American liberation theologian, who was silenced by the previous pope. <laughs> and uh, so you, but that's where it comes to, to, to the fore to me. Do we, are, do we hear the call of markets? And do we hear the call of debtors? And do we hear the call of bankers? And, uh, or, or do we hear the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor? Wow. Would you say that there's a way in which uh, so-called bad theology has contributed to these systems of exploitation and our world's most urgent problems? Um, and if so, does that mean that good theology is, is part of the solution? And yeah. what would good, good theology entail? Yeah. Well, you know, if you look back in, in our history, uh, uh, you, you realize that it, it's gone both ways. You know, it's this, it's this uh, illicit love affair um, because there are always a number of clergy who can be bought. Uh, and when rich people come along and win clergy over, those clergy then speak up for them to politicians and give them a sense of moral legitimacy. Uh, and, you know, we see this perfectly illustrated right now with people like Robert Jeffress and uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who have become these sycophantic supporters of uh, our current president and this uh, regime. And, uh, and, and there's always rewards for the court profits, so to speak, you know, the, the ones who are paid by the court. To, to, there's always this incestuous relationship. Um, and, and so we can say that bad theology gets worse when it's in this kind of relationship. And we could say that good theology goes bad when it gets sucked into this kind of relationship, whether it's the promise of money or the pro promise of power, or, and almost always money and power go together. Um, the irony is for that to change, uh, there's real tension when most of our systems from seminaries to denominations to local congregations are so enmeshed with this kind of political, monetary, religious iron triangle, so to speak. And, and, uh, but that's where the voices arise who are willing to make that kind of break who are willing to speak the truth. And when that happens, the power of religious communities to make things better is, is immense. You know, a, a, a great example is the abolition movement. Now, when you think of it, 
the, the period of slavery was a period where huge wealth was gained by the ultimate exploitation of human labor through slavery. Um, and, uh, and it was the abolition movement that spread through churches, many churches in England, and then a few churches in America that actually helped build the momentum for the abolishment of, of slavery. Now, obviously, it was costly and difficult in terms of lives and all the rest. And in some ways, we still haven't finished that work. But the power of churches to mobilize, I think, is staggering. I'll just give you one other quick example. Uh, if, you were to say, if we were to say, look, we have, I, I don't know how many, uh, let me guess we have uh, 150 to 200 million housing units in the United States. So we have to help as many of those units that have roofs as possible become solar powered homes. I can't think of a better organization than churches and synagogues and mosques, et cetera, to actually organize that work. No better, uh, no better method than that. Uh, and I think that could happen. You know, I think it really could happen. So yes, our religious institutions and the, and, and, and the theology that will stand up to um, idolatry of, of markets, that has power. Absolutely. I'm interested in um, something that you wrote in one of your recent books, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration. So you talk about, among other things, this shift from identifying with organized religion to identifying with organizing religion. Um, could you say a little bit about that distinction and, and why it matters? Yeah. Well, when religion's job is to pacify people so that they're compliant members of the state and compliant members of the economy, and compliant members of the religious hierarchy, then you don't really want any activism. You just want to keep people quiet and giving money and help them, you know, give them some inspiration so they can get up and go to work again on Monday and, and, uh, and give them a hope in heaven because life here on earth is, you know, pretty miserable under whatever regime it is, right? Um, but when you get this alternative vision, uh, it's the vision that I think was really encapsulated in Jesus' core message of the kingdom of God. You know, I think in terms that you're using, we could imagine Jesus saying the ecological civilization of God, right? This alternative civilization. That kingdom was the largest social unit of the day. Well, that's what we call a civilization. Um, uh, I, I think when we have people who are ready to embody that and learn that and live that, I think it has the power to be, uh, to be truly revolutionary. Now, I, I, I'm not sure if I've actually answered your question, though. No, that's good. You mentioned the, the sort of the importance of uh, religious communities in mobilizing for change. Yeah. Um, now, given the rise of the nuns and this sort of spreading allergy, if you will, to organized religion, yes. uh, I mean, what role do you think religions can play realistically in mobilizing uh, for positive change or or does that task now belong to to something else yeah that's a re really good question so first let me say that uh i grew up evangelical fundamentalist you know that world and we always said oh those liberal churches are declining because they have bad theology and, and liberal theology and we're growing because we have 
conservative theology. Well, now, 40 years later, we realize that, uh, no, they're just 35 or 40 years behind the curve, and their young people are leaving in record numbers too. And maybe we'll wake up and say, you know what people were sick of? They, they weren't just sick of liberal or conservative organized religion. They were concerned of any religion that's organized for its own self-preservation without any concern for the larger common good. So maybe there's a whole lot of people out there who have left organized religion, and if they were to have a chance to be invited into organizing religion, there might be a waiting list for that, you know? Um, uh, we, we could be really surprised if, if that were to happen. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it is happening, but I don't think it's happening fast enough. So I think in the foreseeable future, the number of nuns is going to continue to increase. Now, what that's going to mean, I think, it's not that we're reaching the end of Christianity or the end of religion. Um, as long as people care about a value above the value of money, um, there, there's going to be a spiritual search. And as long as they decide to actually try to organize their lives and create communities that live by this alternative value system, there's going to be forms of, of spiritual community. But what we may be at the end of is something that actually needs to end. And that is an economic model of churches or congregations or synagogues or mosques that are so deeply embedded in an economy that's exploitive and extractive, right? Um, now, what could that look like? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. Um, uh, you know, people often say that the Protestant Reformation wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the printing press. And we might find out that the forms of of Christian community and other faith communities that are going to evolve in the next 10, 20, 30 years wouldn't happen without the podcast. Because really, what's happening at this moment is people who are listening to us are driving down the road in their car and nobody else is in their car. And they're listening and they're having thoughts that they wouldn't have at church and they wouldn't have at their business or work. Um, but they're able to, to be in a community of people thinking together. Uh, I don't know where that's gonna go. I don't know what it'll give birth to, but it may be that what we're actually doing right now is a part of how that happens. Just uh, an hour ago, I was being interviewed on a podcast that is exactly doing this in the Christian community. It's, it's a group of former fundamentalists who now have formed a podcast so that Fundamentalists can have secret conversations where they question some of the things they were taught and imagine their faith in a new way. Yeah, that's exciting to think about. And, um, and could, I, could, I, yeah. could I add one thing to that? Because and it, it's not just religious communities that have and enforce their orthodoxy and excommunicate people. You know, when you're part of an economy, like, for example, we have to imagine a form of capitalism that is not based on extraction and exploitation. Uh, we have to imagine that. It, it's possible. Um, John Cobb and Herman Daly and others have challenged us to imagine a form of economy that is not based on measuring GDP, measuring growth in, uh, in certain economic indicators as our only measure of value and success. Well, guess what? Economists need a place where they can think heretical economic thoughts because the economic orthodoxies reinforce some of these traditional ways of thinking. Business people 
business, you know, maybe we've got a few of them listening right now who are business owners. And the orthodoxy is that the only thing that matters is shareholder return. And caring about environmental and social benefit, that's unorthodox. Well, they need a place. It's remarkable how much the whole world is like a church (laughs) in each of its sectors. Yeah, I think uh, in a recent conversation I had with our our mutual friend, David Corton, he was referencing something, I think it was Joseph Stieglitz said about um, sort of economic frameworks are really just religions. Yes. Um, Yeah, and when you think about it, they have a story of the universe. They have an origin story. They have an eschatology, a telo story, and they have a a series of very strict moral guidelines that you have to abide by. It's remarkable how true that is. And uh, a, a set of values that are being yes. passed down and passed on. It's something that should be adopted. Um, and a definition of what the good life is and what a bad life is. Yeah. And of course, this is because economics and religion and politics and business and education and sport, all of these, they're, they're part of human life. And this is what I think we're eventually going to have to realize that this is part of human life. We are stuck in this mess together and we are part of the mess. And so, you know, as Dr. King said, we're, we're, we're either going to learn to work together in harmony or we're going to perish together as fools. Speaking of values and sort of identifying or searching for values above just the value of money, um, what sort of values would, I mean, let's say you're, you're now going to uh, establish a new sort of divine commonwealth or this sort of foundation for an ecological civilization um, you know, what kind of values would you recommend that we, we use as that foundation? So I, I'm going to approach this, you know, as a Christian. And, and so Jesus' primary command, I, I, and let me just put that in a little bit of context, because I think one way to understand Jesus is to say that his tradition began with patriarchy. You know, in, in a way, his, the Jewish tradition begins with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's, it's classic patriarchy. Well, that's where almost all of our civilizations begin in, in patriarchy. And then comes law, Torah. There's law that holds, the, that, that the patriarchy upholds, but that eventually even holds the patriarchy uh, uh, accountable. Pretty remarkable move. And then in the midst of that comes wisdom. You have the philosophers, the, you know, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and so on, where where there's this wisdom tradition that says, let's just remember life isn't just about rules and and there's something higher. And then you have the prophetic tradition that says, you know what, there's a trajectory, there's a day coming when we're going to beat our swords into plowshares. So you see this trajectory. And I think Jesus comes in this trajectory and and embodies a, a tradition of law enhanced by wisdom, enhanced by the prophetic vision of, of a better future. And, and so for Jesus, the, the, the prime directive, if you will, you know, religious people call it the greatest command, but you can call it the prime directive, is the, is the directive of love. Now, if we define love as something beyond selfishness, it always involves the word beyond, beyond just caring about my needs to caring about my family's needs. Oh, beyond just me and my family to care about my neighbor. Oh, beyond just me and my family and my neighbor to care about the stranger, not just the stranger, the alien, the outcast, the refugee, oh, not just, even my enemy, because we're bound together in a web of mutuality. And, and not just my enemy, but then the forest 
and and the meadow and and the and the river and the ocean and the atmosphere and the climate it's this sense of expanding love to realize ultimately our growing interconnectedness now if i go on that journey as a christian the interesting thing is i find out that my hindu neighbor has been having a very similar conversation for a few thousand years and as has my jewish neighbor and my buddhist neighbor and my hindu neighbor and and suddenly i mean this is a historic reality in all of our traditions we realize we have these treasures that all along have thrust us to become neighbors and and work together so what advice would you give to someone listening right now who they really want to participate in this new you know reality this this transition toward a, a new civilization an ecological civilization but maybe they're overwhelmed by this this need that you you had mentioned for sort of a structural systems change on a civilizational scale um you know alternatives to capitalism and and economic models of extractive economies um that's can be overwhelming and daunting so what advice would you give to to our listeners who uh, are maybe feeling a little intimidated by the scale of things Yeah well the first thing I'd say is um keep listening to Ecosiv podcast and <laughs> and other and other resources like this because this is a lifelong learning process you know I think I don't know if it's particularly Americans but it it certainly is Americans we have this idea that we can fix things like the our maximum time frame to fix things is 4 years until the next election election what we've got to do is we got to say no we're in a lifelong struggle a lifelong uh process and and as soon as we deal successfully with this set of challenges there'll be a new set of challenges and 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 so this is part of what it means to live a moral life it's to be in a lifelong struggle so i get out of my mind the idea we're going to fix this and then we can go back to being complacent um you know whether you call it enlightenment or being woke or being born again whatever it it it's not a one time event it it has to lead to a a whole new way of life so the first thing i'd say is just assume that we're in this for the rest of our lives uh, i'd say that the second thing i'd say is that uh and 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 that means we we keep learning for our whole lives then i would say there are easy things that we can do that are within reach and and whenever we get a chance to do one of those easy things we ought to do it like for example you know you're going to go to the grocery store and buy a tomato well you can buy tomatoes that were produced by exploitative and extractive methods or you can buy a tomato that was produced in the whole fair food movement you know so we try to make decisions it can be overwhelming but you you start to learn and i'll tell you what i think's going to happen in the next few years i think companies are going to sort themselves out and you're going to find out that certain grocery store chains have a greater concern for the ethical impact of the food they sell and certain clothing chains have a have a greater concern and and that's going to happen and we're going to demand it and and it's already happening so little decisions like that you know i think are going to are going to affect us then i think that will lead to bigger decisions for example something i wish that every church would do i wish every church would have a, you know a sunday where they ask people to make a a car pledge and the pledge is that you will never buy a car that is less fuel efficient than the one that you have and and in fact you could ask people for bigger commitment if you have an internal combustion engine your next car will be at least a hybrid if not fully electric right 
we, we could invite people to make decisions, bigger decisions like that. Uh, and, and then I think the only other thing I'd say in the short run is that we would make commitments to stop voting for people who, I'm just going to say it, who are idiots, who, who have the gall to either remain willfully ignorant about the reality of climate change or who have the dishonesty to know it's real but pretend they don't think it's real because of the political games they have to play. If more and more of us would just make a commitment, I just won't reward anyone with my vote who is that ignorant. Um, that will be a step in the right direction. A lot of other things we could say, but that would be a start. Absolutely. So given the, the seriousness of the problem, the time frame that we have to, to bring about radical change, um, do you think there's reason to be positive about the future of our planet? Uh, is there reason to think that a major paradigm shift is, is imminent? You know, I, I, I've got to be honest with you, Andrew, my feeling on that changes, you know, from between nine in the morning and two in the afternoon, just about every day. I've got to be honest. I mean, the, you know, the data is not encouraging. We've got to be realistic about that. But the, but the data is also uh, uh, not our only horizon of hope, right? Um, my, uh, my friend Jim Wallace often says that his definition of faith is uh, looking, at, looking at the impossible and then acting to change the evidence, right? Uh, if, if you see politicians who are always testing the wind, well, then you say, well, we've got to change the wind. And we all start blowing and we all start working and opening our mouths to, to change the wind. Um, so, uh, but what I advocate, I encourage people to do is to say, yes, there are reasons for hope. There are also reasons for deep alarm. Uh, panic isn't helpful, but deep alarm. Uh, and here's what I would say. We need, there's a kind of cheap hope that, that says, oh, I think things are going to turn out. And it's only because we only look at the bright side and we don't look at the dark, dark side. That cheap hope often turns into dead hope <laughs> because it dies when we face the negative evidence. But I think after hope has died, there's a kind of resurrection, but I would call it a deep hope. And this deep hope says, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's needed, no matter what the evidence is. In other words, if it looks like we're going to fail, I'm still going to do what's right. And that deep hope to me is what is invincible. And, um, and I think there are more and more people who are getting that. And here's the other thing that I'd have to add is I think the kind of life that we want to live in an ecological civilization is such a better life than the life we're living now. I do have hope about that. I think it will be a better life. That's fantastic. I, I agree. Are there any projects you're working on now that you're really excited about that you want to share? Well, you know, I, I, I'll just mention maybe two quickly. One is that I, I just wrote a children's book. It's called Corey and the Seventh Story. And one of my feelings is that we have to help children understand that there are different stories at work competing for their, not only their attention, but competing for the, their lives, you know, to, to suck their lives into that story. And so I, you know, I, that's a project I've been working on. It's called Corey and the Seventh Story. And then I just wrote a book on the Galapagos Islands because uh, I was invited to, to go there and, and, and share the experience and do some theological reflection. And 
and that'll come out later this year. Um, I'm excited about that. Also, uh, three books that I wrote uh, almost 10 years, uh, uh, over 10 years ago, um, uh, A New Kind of Christian, The Story You Find Ourselves In, and The Last Word and the Word After That, a trilogy of kind of fictional books about my own spiritual journey. Um, that's being re-released actually next month. So those are some things I'm excited about these days. Cool. Well, is there anything that, um, that you'd like to add that we haven't discussed yet before we wrap up? Well, I, I wonder if I could ask you a question, uh, Andrew. I, uh -oh. I, I don't know. Okay, go ahead. So you've been doing this, this podcast for a while now. And um, tell me what you are learning from your role uh, uh, helping bring this podcast together and what are you excited about through this process? No, that's a great question. So one of the things that's become very clear to me in doing this, speaking with um, you know, just really awesome people from around the world is that any sort of positive transformation on a global scale is going to require an all hands on deck mm. situation where, where we are sort of collaborating on an unprecedented scale and tapping into the creativity of as many people as we possibly can. And what excites me is that I see more and more people interested in that kind of collaboration. And I think, you know, that gives me a sense of, of hope that, uh, like you said, a, a deep hope that change can occur, um, maybe not in enough time to avoid all manner of suffering um, related to, to climate change and economic inequality and those sorts of things, because people are currently suffering yes. um, under those umbrellas. But, but that there is an, a deepening need for systemic change and a clarifying vision for an alternative future that people are starting to rally behind. That excites me. Beautifully um, so, said. Beautifully said. I thank you um, and and others like you for for continuing to carry those banners and and moving our society forward. Well, as you said, it's all hands on deck. So thanks very much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian, for being here. Um, and as you said, um, let's stay woke. <laughs> <laughs>